0: ...gray hair, regular features, rather a fine face, very tanned, a little lined towards the end. He hadn't got a great deal of humour in him, rather stiff. Women liked him, but I don't know that he liked them very much. At any rate, he gave the impression of being careful. Once bitten, twice shy, he once told me, and I suppose he was speaking of the divorce. But that doesn't seem to stop one being bitten. He was born a Canadian in Toronto, I believe he went to England as a flight cadet to train with the Royal Flying Corps in 1915, and he never went back to Canada. Not to live, that is, though he must have passed through it often enough. He lived and worked in England and the Far East all the time between the wars. But it was as a Canadian that he got his job with Ozcan after the Second World War. All the pilots on that line had to be either Australian or Canadian, for some point of politics. Well now, I emigrated to Australia when I got married, just after the Second World War. I was in the motor trade at first, but then I got a job instructing with the Aero Club at Ballarat, which got me back into the aircraft world. I joined Australian Continental Airways some time ago, and have been a captain with them for the last five years. In July of last year, I was on the Sydney-Melbourne run, flying a Viscount with Dickie Powell as first officer. On that tour, I used to take up Flight 82 in the late afternoon, get a three-hour break in Sydney, and bring the last flight back, Flight 156, and that left at 20.25. And I got to Wessenden at half past ten at night. I didn't like that duty very much, for several reasons. One got to Sydney after the shop shut, and too little time to go into the city for a movie. If possible, I like to be home in the late afternoon because of reading to the kids before they go to bed. One sees so little of them otherwise. I like to help them making models, dressing dolls, and all that sort of thing. Instead, I had to stick around for three hours at Kingsford Smith Airport, 500 miles away from them, reading a book in the pilot's room listening to the radio, or just snoozing in a chair. That year we had a terrible July. I was sitting there one evening, half asleep, listening to the radio, and the wind outside and the rain beating on the window. The seven o'clock news was just coming on, and I stayed to listen to that before going to tea. I sat dozing through all the stuff about Egypt and the Middle East, and all the stuff about the floods along the Murray. Then there came a bit that jerked me suddenly awake. The announcer said something like this. It is reported from Tasmania that a pilot flying a small aeroplane upon an errand of mercy crashed this afternoon on a small airstrip on the west coast. The pilot, Captain John Pascoe, was attempting to land to bring a child into hospital, Betty Hoskins, aged seven, who was suffering from appendicitis. There is no practical land route to the Lewis River, and all communications normally take place by sea, but no vessel has been able to enter the river for the last ten days, owing to continually western gales. Captain Pascoe was reported to have sustained a fractured skull. I was a bit upset when I heard this news. We all knew Johnny Pascoe, because for a time, Sydney had been one of his terminals, and he still passed through now and then. The world of aviation is a small one in Australia. But I knew him better than anyone else, of course, because I'd known him on and off for the last thirty years, ever since he taught me to fly in England at the Leecaster Flying Club. In 1942, I'd met him in Cairo when he was flying a courier service to England in the Hudson. In 1944, he had flown me back to Lynham from Calcutta in a Liberator, after I got shot up in Burma. I would met him many times since then, particularly in Australia. All through my life I would known Johnny Pascoe, quiet, grizzled and competent. He was part of my experience. When I went for briefing and ran through the flight plan with Dick Powell, I asked the control officer, ''Did you get any more on Johnny Pascoe than was on the news?'' ''Not much,'' he said. Hobart sent a machine out just before dark, but he didn't get far. It clamped down over the mountains. Is it right he got a fractured skull? So they say. They got that over the radio. That's right. They got a transceiver at the Lewis River. I'd already got the weather gen from my flight, but I went back and saw the Met officer again. I asked him, what's the form for tomorrow on the west coast of Tasmania? I'm wondering how they're going to get Johnny Pascoe out. He turned to his chart and stood tapping his pencil against his teeth silent. Then he laid it on the chart. There's this depression station at the east end of the Bass Strait. It's been there for four days. There seems to be another forming down the southwest here. He traced a little circle on the chart. Might push it away. Get a clear interval before the second one comes up. We might. I could tell you better tomorrow morning. If we do, it'll deteriorate then. It's like that this time of year, of course. I went out to the aircraft and put all this out of my mind. You must do that, and I'd got into the habit of it years before. When you're doing pre-flight checks, you only want to think about the pre-flight checks. It was a miserable night with a strong, gusty southwest wind, and that was going to make us 15 minutes late on schedule.